Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessings of the beautiful weather this day and for your presence in it, um, for your creation. And um, be with us all as we uh, await with patience um, and hope um, through today and um, just calmly uh, witnessing the results of the election. Um, bless St. Michael's and all who work in it, including its parishioners. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. <laughs> Beautiful prayer, thank you, thank you. All right, now I'm about to share my screen. Now I'll, I'll say that whenever I have these Bible studies, I always have some bias at the beginning of what's most important and what we're really going to focus on in talking. And sometimes that proves true, sometimes it doesn't. But today we're dealing with a passage, I'm kind of looking at it, and it's a beautiful passage, but I'm not really, I have no agenda as for where this conversation goes. So what that means is that I need you to pay extra attention to what you find meaningful and to point that out to help shape the conversation. Because I've looked at this a million times and it's beautiful, but I'm just not quite sure um, what's going to grab our attention. So I'm going to leave that to all of us. So I'm going to share my screen here. And today we're looking at the church in Antioch. We'll start with chapter 11, verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that took place over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, and they spoke the word to no one except Jews. But among them were some men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also proclaiming the Lord Jesus. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number became believers and turned to the Lord. News of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he rejoiced, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast devotion, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great many people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for an entire year, they associated with the church and taught a great many people. And it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. At that time, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and predicted by the spirit that there would be a severe famine over all the world. And this took place during the reign of Claudius. The disciples determined that according to their ability, each would send relief to the believers living in Judea. This they did, sending it to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and stop there, and I'll just say a few things about this passage. First is that we remember the stoning of Stephen that happened a few chapters earlier, and the great secret of Christianity is that whenever the church is persecuted, she tends to grow. And whenever times are good and easy, that's when the church actually tends to get more stagnant. So rather than shutting down this movement, the effort to persecute Stephen and Christians only led to this missionary explosion. It sends the believers out into the world. And what do they do? Do they hide? No, they preach the gospel. They bear witness to the love of Christ. 
And we're told that initially they spoke to no one except the Jews. Um, because again, just a reminder, this started as a movement of the people of Israel proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah of Israel, but it quickly spread to where uh, the Gentiles were given the opportunity to believe. And so in verse 20, when it says in Antioch, they spoke to the Hellenists, I take that to be a reference to the Gentiles, that the gospel is being proclaimed to those outside the people of Israel, and that the the Lord was with them in this endeavor. We're told that a great number became believers and turned to the Lord, and that Jerusalem is hearing of this. So verse 22, news of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. What is the this? I suspect it is the conversion of all these Gentiles. Remember, last week we talked about Peter and Cornelius and that event where the Gentiles received the Spirit and were baptized. But again, um, kind of the theme that seems to be uh, building here is that more and more Gentiles are coming into the church and that the church in Jerusalem has to figure out what to do about this. And so what they do is they send Barnabas to check it out. And we've seen Barnabas before. Uh, He's been in relationship with Saul. And so this shouldn't be news to Barnabas, but he, he goes to see what's happening. And whenever he sees the grace of God, the evidence of the spirit, he rejoices and he exhorted all of them to remain faithful to the Lord. Again, I take all of them to mean this mix of Jews and Gentiles who are coming to believe. Um, And, you know, one thing that we can talk about here in a moment is, I love that phrase, he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast devotion. A question I want you to consider for our conversation is, what does that mean for you? If I were to say to you, your task at this moment in time is to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast devotion, what would that mean to you? Um. Barnabas goes to get Saul, and Saul moves to Antioch for an entire year. And so, according to Acts, this is really Saul's first missionary outpost to spend time with the Christians in Antioch, preaching to them, discipling them, pastoring them. So, apparently, Paul's missionary journeys haven't really started yet. He is putting down roots in Antioch for a year. And this, of course, is where. Uh, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, I think it's important to name that they did not call themselves Christians. At this point, they probably still refer to themselves as the way or something similar, Um, but other people are calling them Christians, meaning that other people are starting to recognize this group as being distinct um, from observing Jews, that one can now tell apart these Christians from others who worship in the synagogue. And so I think that's an important note that there is some differentiation happening to where other people give these members of the way a different name um, than those who are um, the Jews, um, as they're referred to in verse 19. Then we just have this interesting note about a guy named Agabus. And the reason Agabus is remembered is because he probably really stood up and predicted a famine <laughs> and people remembered that he was right. Otherwise, this odd detail would never have been included. But I think of special interest is 
the theme in Luke Acts that the Holy Spirit is at work and that there are often signs of the Spirit uh, taking place. And so, you know, we're told last week that the Spirit fell upon Cornelius and his household and they were speaking in tongues. And, you know, we're told at the Pentecost that the Spirit came in flames of fire. Um, And so one of the things that is true for Luke is that there is evidence of the Spirit in a powerful way at work in the church during this time. And many early Christians um, uh, took on the mantle of prophet. Um, We see this in Paul's letters, that if there was a prophet in the community from time to time, he or she would stand up and speak. You know, one of the things we can talk about is why is it that we don't experience that anymore? Or why do we not experience it as frequently? Or why are we so skeptical of people who claim to be prophets uh, whenever we encounter them? That's an interesting conversation. But, you know, it occurs to me that in our culture, you know, we are so cynical and we're so rational, we're so in our head, um, and that we've often lost touch with other aspects of how we know things. And um, I'm going to be curious to know what you think uh, about all that and whether there's room for people like Agabus in the church today. Um, And then in verse 29, um, just important to name that the um, believers sent relief to the church in Judea, that one of the hallmarks of the early Christian church was they knew how to care for each other. And that we see this in Paul's letters, we see it in Acts that before Christians start taking care of the rest of the world, they're really known for taking care of themselves, not in a selfish way, but in a way that was really attractive to the first century world. Um, The church really did at times act like a family. And so if the church in Judea was struggling, if they were undergoing a very, very difficult time, it was a very normal thing for the church in Antioch to take up a special collection and to send money to help their sister church out. Um, Something similar to what perhaps we're doing with St. Michael's and Baton Rouge, who lost their roof in a series of hurricanes. Um, We might not be making it the focus of our church at the moment, but we are sending funds to kind of help our sister church. And that was a really common practice in the early church. And that is highlighted from time to time, not just in the Acts of the Apostles, but also in Paul's letters. Um, Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and pause there and just see what's resonating with you from um, the first part of Acts chapter 11. I'm kind of, first of all, it's what you just said about our helping in Louisiana, but I don't think everybody knows that, and you're right. I think we ought to make more focus so people are more aware of what we're doing within our own community of St. Michael's and to the greater world for the greater good. I think it's important that we focus not inwardly right now on ourselves, which is so easy since we're limited in um, what we can go and do, where we can live and move and have our being, John. I just think, you know, we ought to make, let more people know that we're doing that within the parish or what we're going to be doing, I know. Yeah. Well, and what I would say, and I don't think you're wrong, but two things that I would say is that uh, I'm looking at the we, right? Everyone always looks at me and says that that John and the trumpet is the we. And of course, we have our part to play and, and we'll do that part. But I think part of this is always uh, the community 
um, doing that work of telling the story and making phone calls and, you know, sharing, you know, whenever we do write something in the trumpet, making sure you share it with some friends so that they see it. Because one of the things that I think has um, really been revealing during this time uh, is that, um, uh, not that this is abnormal, but, you know, whenever we write something in the trumpet or I send an email, there's always that subconscious belief that that means people will understand it and read it, but that has not been my experience, right? <laughs> and so um, I think that the kind of general rule is you have to tell people 10 times for them to hear you once. And so uh, how do we do that? That's a, a really good question. And the, the other thing is, you know, I know we've given money for already for Albuquerque for Thanksgiving, but I think that needs to be highlighted too. Or, yeah. or people get, get be given an opportunity individually, maybe since we've always supported our sister community. In yeah. South so part of outreach is <clears throat> inviting people in to the experience of outreach. And sometimes people need a... Uh, a big obvious display of hey look we're we're helping put a roof on this church over here and you know um, you know the money that you're giving to the church I'm not in these words per se but you know we're we're sending food to El Blaine and maybe we can help deliver food there so we get more than just a money experience but an actual hands-on experience. But I really think that it needs to come, reading the trumpet is an isolated experience. Me talking to Gail is just between the two of us. Seeing something that is a public announcement or whatever, now I, now I become part of the community. Oh, look what St. Michael's is doing, what this community is doing. And I want to be part of that community. And I'll... I'll never forget when I worked in the walked in the hot, the door of St. Michael's for the first time, and Barbara Rustling came up and introduced herself, and she's a great ambassador. And we got talking, and she found that I did Altar Guild. She says, "You want to join Altar Guild?" And right that day, I was on Altar Guild because she pulled me into a family and community. And we, as St. Michael's, the minute somebody walks in that Northex. We need to be invited in. It's like Barnabas and all these people. They're pulling people in and yay, you're doing a good job. Keep up with it. And I think we need to have a keep up with it approach. You know? Right. I mean, we can brag a little. Don't you think? Yeah. Well, I think, I think certainly we have an obligation to share the story of what we're doing. Absolutely. I don't think that's the way we are going to do that. This is, this is, we actually talked about this in staff meeting today, but you know, I, just say, I don't think it's bragging. I think it is important for the community to understand that we're doing something because quickly, again, along with cynicism and everything else, people speak up and if they know better, yeah. they can speak up in a different way. You know, I have to say one of the things that it's tricky because I understand why we use these words um, but there's always a subtle danger whenever we divide, and, and we all do this in our language, like there's the you know, ministry of the church and the operating budget, and then there's this other thing called outreach, and that those are different things. Um, when the lines are actually a little bit more fuzzy than, than you might think, and 
that I think one of the things that we see in Acts is that um, that there's just a whole, there's one thing, and that you have to take care of the whole one thing for it all to work. And so one of the things, and I put this in the letter that I mailed, and by the way, this was an underestimate, because uh, it doesn't include all the, um, the way that we're subsidizing the day school during COVID, which is an outrage to the community. But this year, St. Michael's will end up putting, and this really is an underestimate, um, more than $53,000 into the community. Um, part of that is the $23,000 community investment budget. Part of that is an extra $15,000 the vestry approved. Part of that is my discretionary funds. You know, part, I mean, there's just different little things um, that, that that all goes into. Um, but that $50,000 we get to put into the community in a year um, when there's a pandemic um, only happens when people are passionate about supporting the congregation they're a part of. That's what enables us to do it. And so somehow I think um, one of the things I long to do is to figure out how do we change our language. I really don't like the language of like inreach and outreach. Uh, it, it feels very dualistic to me. I understand why we use it. I'd certainly understand why we use it. Um, but one of the things I wonder about is how do we develop a language that, um, I'm going to admit Michael Donegan, uh, that enables us to, to see all of this work we do, whether it's worship or supporting our staff or caring for our building or buying a new roof for St. Michael's in Baton Rouge or turkeys. How do we put that under one umbrella and see it as a whole? And um, that's a tricky thing, but I think it's really important. Yeah. I uh, think that part of it is just, um, again, maybe understanding what we, who we are as disciples. Because I think of outreach as hospitality, as doing it to uh, It's loving your neighbor. I mean, it, it's, it, in other words, or what it really is, is part of what it is to be a Christian, I think, to, to, live as, to live the gospel. And so sometimes if we go that way, and that's true of all those things you just mentioned, I think we track them for our human functional needs uh, or accountability because we have to do that but um, that's part of who we are and I think that doing that as a community is actually a nice thing because people that want to do it that might feel like they don't know how or they are incapable or whatever that's part of to me our sharing of our gifts as a community as the one body which mm -hmm. which now can I jump into something you said in the readings? <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, so about the question that you had and what does it, the, the hand of the Lord is with them and what does it mean to be remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast devotion? I think that's part of what we're talking about right now. It's um, not being cynical, um, being faithful, even as you watch things around you happen, that you can feel are the hand of the Lord or feel that it's the Lord doing, but you still might not understand it. But therefore, don't worry about that. Continue with your devotion to the Lord and, and how we do it. Um, that's, that's to me what those, those two things both tie together. When I was thinking of the hand of the Lord and have I felt it with me, I don't know that I felt the hand of the Lord unless it's a little bit different. I felt the voice of the Lord. I felt the Lord's presence. I felt urging. I don't know if that's one and the same of, the, of seeing that the hand of the Lord is with somebody. But I just wanted to comment on that. Yeah. Hi, Gail. 
Hi, yeah, and I'm kind of like Mary, segue back to the readings also. I, I was reading when they were first called Christians, which made me stop and think about, gee, you know, is that the first time this word had, had actually been used? And footnotes in two places said partisans of Christ. And then I started reading about it, though, and Christianos in Greek meant little, Christ, little Christ. And I thought, how appropriate is that for us? To be little Christ, I mean, that's what we're trying to strive for, to live our life as Jesus lived his. And I love that, thinking that, that we can be little Christ here on earth and share with each other and with the greater good. And I think because of our helping build that roof, God will bless us so we can get ours built too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, maybe other than the word inreach or outreach would be something along the lines of, you know, community caring. What's that? Something along the lines of community caring. Everybody wants to be part of a community. They want to be part of it. And part of being, being part of a community means doing something together, talking together, meeting together, physically packing little, you know, dignity bags together. And that's what builds strength among each other and community. Um, anyway, just just something like that. If you don't like the word outreach, yeah. I did agree because I thought of being part of a community yesterday. You know, um, like for Vaughn Lane. Well, know. that's that's great. And um, to kind of comment on both of those. Um, you know, the word that we have today, it says that this is where the disciples were first called Christians. That the kind of the blanket term, I think, that we're given in the New Testament for this reality we call the Christian life is discipleship. And the word disciple comes from a Greek word that means student or apprentice. And the idea, you know, a disciple is not like oh, a disciple. A, a, a disciple is more like uh, someone who's an apprentice. So if you want to learn how to be a woodworker, you spend time in the presence of a very skilled woodworker and, and you learn how to do it yourself. And the idea is that the skill that we're called to learn, that Jesus is our teacher, is the art of living life in the kingdom of heaven. So whenever that word discipleship is used or apprentice, if you want to think of yourself as in an apprenticeship trying to learn something, the skill that we're called to learn as individuals and a community is what does it mean to live our life rooted in an awareness of the kingdom of heaven and to act in such a way that that kingdom is increasingly manifest. And so we do that in a lot of different ways. We do it with how we treat one another. We do it with how we treat ourselves. We do it with decisions about how we spend our time and our money. Right. And, um, and I think that that word discipleship can really hold all these different things that we talk about in reach, outreach, service, mission, justice, that this is the word that I think is meant to hold all these different ideas that we like to focus on. What's your relationship with that word? If I were to say, you know, Barbara, Julie, Annie, are you a disciple of Jesus? Does that word have positive connotations, negative connotations, or neutral connotations? No, I, I love it. I, yeah. Um, yeah. 
um, just in, in this day and age for me, um, you know, there's so many different definitions of what being Christian is. Unfortunately, I mean, yeah. seems like really it's just being a disciple of Christ, right? Yeah. Following, following Jesus's teaching. So, but there sure is a lot of things that don't seem to fall under that, that people think are Christian. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm, you know, I, I feel a little, you know, I, I feel conflicted about it. Mm-hmm. The way you described it and defined it, I'm all in. Um, I like it a lot. The word disciple, um, I think from a social, cultural standpoint, uh, makes me uncomfortable. And I'm wondering whether it is um, she's a nutcase. (laughs) She's, you know, she's over the top into this Christianity stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, which, you know, should not matter, but it just sort of, um, like, you know, when I was doing, you know, I'm doing Stephen ministry and I find myself constantly explaining, it's like, no, I'm not a minister. I don't wear a collar. You know, this is what this word means. There's so much misunderstanding, um, at large of what some of these more, uh, faith-driven terms mean um, in reality. It's like people ascribe certain meanings to them that aren't true. Mm. Yeah. How yeah. the term in Christ's service or being a servant of Christ? And I don't think it has the kind of connotations that Barbara is talking about with which I resonate, the disciple uh, in common parlance can mean fanatic and it, it can be scary to people, but um, I, I like the terms servant and, and service. Mm-hmm. Well, I always think of disciples as the, those were the people in the crowd. Those are the people that, that went to find out what Jesus had to say. Mm-hmm. Maybe followed him from place to place, but less likely, more more likely, just you know, if he came around and they heard he was coming, they would go listen. And it might not have been, you know, they may have listened to other people too. But but it's it's interesting you say that because uh, in in the New Testaments, and this is prominent in Matthew in particular, um, a distinction is made between the disciples and the crowds. Uh, the crowds are kind of given their own name. In Greek, I think it's oklos, and you don't want to be an oklos. You don't want to be a member of the crowd, right? You want to be a disciple. Uh, and so that's an interesting that you bring that up because it's uh, one of those kind of subtle themes to, to one of the gospels um, where you're subtly asked to choose. Are you going to be a disciple or are you just going to be part of the crowds, you know? Um, one of the things that keeps coming up um, that I'm present to is um, we all have uh, 
a way that we want to be perceived and don't want to be perceived. And most people I know in the Episcopal Church don't want to be perceived as a fanatic or closed-minded or judgmental or these other things that uh, often come with, you know, the baggage of being a Christian in today's world. And so it's very natural and understandable to kind of um, be sensitive to what words that we use. And, and so that's just a, a normal thing that is part of the deal. <laughs> Annie? The, the word disciple to me has always brought up uh, the word leadership and responsibility. And so it's kind of, um, I don't know, it, it just, those are the words that I hear when I think of disciples. Mm, yeah, leadership, responsibility, because the disciples were leaders. Yeah. But I never thought of myself as being that of the church. You know, you think of that was for the priest or the whatever, you know. Yeah. Not me. <laughs> you. I'm, you have to be a disciple, not me. I'm, no. I, I think that um, one thing that's worth noting about this word that is often missed is that a disciple is not someone who's, who learns from a dead teacher. Um, that this, this idea of being an apprentice, you only learn, you know, to be a master woodworker from spending time with a woodworker. You don't read manuals all day. Um, and the whole idea of being a disciple is that there's some intimacy, is that you believe Jesus is alive and you spend time in Jesus's presence, whatever that means to you, learning how to live your life uh, the way that God wants you to live it. Um, um, you know, the question isn't, you know, the real question is not what would Jesus do, but what would I do if my life was animated um, with a knowledge of God's will and an awareness of God's love? Um, because we're all different. We've, we've all been given a different life to live. And so how are we called to live our life? You know, anyway. One last thing, um, when you talk about, you know, f fanatical, because um, I think, well, there's, I think there's these two different types of being a fanatic. I mean, Jesus was a fanatic in the way that he loved, because um, mm -hmm. it blew people away, and he like, you know, crossed over boundaries and stuff. But the way we think of fanatic in, in our modern day seems to be more about, you know, morals or, um, you know, uh, your culture, uh, those types of things, rather than, you know, being fanatical about justice and um, uh, just, you know, the, the, the type of fierce love that, that Jesus depicted. So I don't know, for me, it's kind of like, well, I think we are called to be fanatical in the way that Jesus was, but not really in the way that I guess that word seems to resonate today, where it seems to be more about uh, rules and regulations and whether people are in or out, those kinds of things. Yeah. Well said. Well said. Oh. Gail? I was to, uh, 
<laughs> I still, <laughs> it's okay, John. I still sometimes struggle with, um, well, not struggle, but apostle and disciple. I mean, that we had the 12 apostles, but we also call them the 12 disciples, the, the first ones. Is there really a difference? And I always think of disciples of Christ as the Christian church. I mean, and those get confusing to people since we're all Christians. But I mean, like Texas Christian University, but Christian, it all it gets people confused sometimes. Yeah. Well, there, I mean, there is a difference in terms yeah. of what the words actually mean. Um, you know, the, the, the word uh, apostle in Greek comes from a word that means to be sent. And so they just have different emphases. Like, so a disciple, I mean, the word literally means it's apprentice. It's someone who spends time in the presence of their master, right? That there is no goal. If we're just focusing on discipleship, there is no goal to discipleship other than spending time in the presence of Jesus and learning from him how to live your life. Uh, and so, um, think of Martha and Mary, you know, and, um, Martha's running around and Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus and Martha complains and Jesus says, Mary has chosen the better part That's sitting at the feet of Jesus quietly. That's kind of the archetype of discipleship. On the other hand, an apostle leaves Jesus, right? I mean, Jesus sends them out, um, and they're animated by the spirit. An apostle is sent to proclaim the love of Christ, to share the gospel, to engage in the work of justice. There's a real movement out of apostleship. And, you know, the way I tend to think about these things is that ideally in the church, we're manifesting both, right? And in our own life, we're manifesting both appropriately. But what you'll find if you really talk to people is that we've all been given different gifts. If you've ever seen one of those spiritual assessment gifts, um, some people tend a little bit more towards the gifts of an apostle where they really love to be on the go to, to create community, to preach the gospel, to organize community. I mean, whatever that outward movement is. And some people are more quiet, contemplative types. Um, they love to teach and to read and, things like that. And, and so I think that it's good to know kind of where you lean, not as an excuse for not living into the fullness of the Christian life, but just to be at home with who you are. And so for instance, uh, me, whenever there's those spiritual uh, gifts uh, tests, I always um, score very high uh, as, uh, I'm always called a shepherd. Uh, shepherds are the ones who love to teach and they love to pastor. They're not the ones who are leading the prophetic march and they're not ones who are the cutting edge apostles, you know, doing things before everyone else. They're more of just the curator of community. But I've got colleagues who sco score very low in the shepherding gifts and they're very high in the prophetic gifts. So they're very high and the uh, apostolic gifts and the way that they lead is much different than the way that I lead. And so, you know, we're all a little different. Thank you. And Paul, Paul liked to, to argue that he was an apostle, fully an apostle as much as the 12, because even though he never saw Jesus, 
we don't know that he ever saw Jesus anywhere except in his vision. He he felt it strongly enough that he was he was equal to the other apostles. He, he called did. himself an apostle. He did. He he was very clear in his apostolic identity. And that bared out with how he lived his life. I mean, he was on the move, right? Oh, yeah. So he the was. fact that Paul stays in Antioch for a year, that's about as long as he stays put anywhere. <laughs> that right? was a big Paul, I mean, read it, he is he literally is all over the Roman Empire. And he, I mean, he's there, he makes some tents, he preaches the gospel, he sets up a community, and then he leaves. And in some sense, not, you know, to be overly like cynical, uh, not even cynical, but not to be, uh, not to critique, but um, so we're doing a four-week podcast. I don't know how many of y'all listen to the Calm Words podcast, but the one coming out uh, today, we're doing a series on virtue. And uh, the first episode is on Paul writing to the church in Corinth that has all these divisions. I mean, that just horrible polarizing divisions. And in some sense, Paul never stuck around to pastor the community. He just basically set it up, got them going, and then he leaves, right? And then all these divisions erupt because he never did the hard work of pastoring the community over time. Now, that's not a critique of Paul because he's called to be an apostle, but it does speak to the fact that apostles are good at starting things, but what they start may or may not be healthy. I mean, that's an entrepreneur. I mean, he needed a chief operating officer or a shepherd. That's right. Um, that's right. Make it, make it all work smoothly. That's right. Girl. Yeah. So if you said, if you said to me, John, for the rest of your priesthood, you're going to just start a bunch of churches, get them off the ground and move on. I'd say, that does not sound fun. I don't want to do that. But other people I know would say, sign me up, right? And so that, you know, that just speaks to the different gifts that people have for ministry. Yeah. yeah. Would y'all want to go ahead and, and read the second half of this passage? Okay. All right. Um, let's go to James and Peter. Okay. About that time, King Herod laid violent hands upon some who belonged to the church. He had James, the brother of John, killed with the sword. After he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the festival of unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison and handed him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. While Peter was kept in prison, the church prayed fervently to God for him. The very night before Herod was going to bring him out, Peter, bound with two chains, was sleeping between two soldiers, while guards in front of the door were keeping watch over the prison. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and light shone in the cell. He tapped Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly, and the chains fell off his wrists. The angel said to him, fasten your belt, put on your sandals, and he did so. Then he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Peter went out and followed him. He did not realize that what was happening with the angel's help was real. He thought he was seeing a vision. After they had passed the first and the second guard, they came before the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went outside and walked along a lane when suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hands of Herod and from all the Jewish people 
were expecting. As soon as he had realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose name was Mark, where many had gathered and were praying. When he knocked at the outer gate, a maid named Rhoda came to answer. On recognizing Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that instead of opening the gate, she ran in and announced that Peter was at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind, but she insisted that it was so. They said, it is his angel. Meanwhile, Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the gate, they saw him and were amazed. He motioned to them with his hand to be silent and described for them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he added, tell this to James and to the believers. Then he left and went to another place. When morning came, there was no small commotion among the soldiers over what had happened to Peter. When Herod searched for him and could not find him, he examined the guards and ordered them to be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Okay, um, just a few things. I'm not going to go over all this. It's a beautiful story, but one or two themes I want to highlight. One is just King Herod, that we find ourselves with a king who is setting himself up in opposition to the kingdom of heaven. So you can think of the kingdom of Herod versus the kingdom of heaven. And it raises the question, can the kingdom of Herod or any other worldly kingdom ever stamp out or defeat the kingdom of heaven? And the answer, of course, is no, that King Herod and all worldly kings will have their plans thwarted in the end by the kingdom of heaven. But King Herod um, is now starting to persecute the church, and he's doing this because he sees that it pleases the Jewish people. And so the persecution of the church is no longer at the hands of the religious authorities, but now you have the chief regional civil authority uh, and Herod Agrippa um, doing the persecuting. And he successfully kills James, the brother of John. And when he sees that this makes the Jews really, really happy, he plans to do the same to Peter. And so Herod is really portrayed as a leader with no real morals. I mean, his main job is just political expediency and pleasing the right constituents. And if he can kill Peter and have his approval ratings go up, that is what he is going to do. Um, And so he throws Peter into jail and, you know, he's bound with two chains. He's sleeping between two soldiers. You've got guards in front of the door. Basically, Peter has no chance of getting out alive. That's the whole point of verse six. But then in verse seven, an angel appears and the chains fall off of Peter's wrists. And that whole line about the chains falling off our wrists, we can see that as a literal thing that happened. It's also metaphorical, right? There's so many instances in Luke's gospel where salvation is portrayed as Jesus setting the prisoners free. And so we go all the way back to the beginning of Luke's gospel where Jesus enters the synagogue and, you know, reads from the book of Isaiah and says, I am here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He has come to set the prisoners free. In your hearing, the scripture has been fulfilled. Now we have an illustration of prisoners being set free. But of course, as often happens in scripture, there's a double meaning. This is not just about Peter being released from a physical jail but about us being released from the chains of sin and death. And so you kind of have a double meaning happening. But the main 
you know, thrust of this passage is the supernatural work of God and the efficacy of the prayers of the church that prayed for his release. Um, the, the church has power, the spirit is with the church, all of that is part of what's being highlighted. And then you just have this great, lovely scene that is only in here because I think it's preserved from historical memory. It serves no other real literary purpose where um, Peter is delivered supernaturally and he goes to the house where all the Christians are and a maid by the name of Rhoda answers. The very fact that we remember her name means that this story was told over and over again. And it was memorable because it's just funny. I mean, Peter's at the gate and she's so overjoyed that she doesn't even let him in. She just runs to the other disciples to say Peter is alive and they have to go get Peter and let him in. And of course, whenever they let Peter in, he gives them the good news, the wonderful news that God's power is at work. And so I want you to imagine putting yourself in the shoes of these Christians. Um, you fear for your life. A persecution is broken out. Um, your own Jewish brothers and sisters hate you, right? You've been kicked out of the synagogue and they're persecuting you. And now the civil authorities are turning on you. Um, time's running out. It looks like this movement's going to come to an end, right? This is the moment where Nietzsche proclaims God is dead, right? There is no hope for this movement. They're all huddled in a house. Uh, Peter is about to be killed. He's guarded by chains and soldiers. There is no hope. And yet an angel delivers Peter and Peter gets to tell them God is alive. You know, the spirit's at work. Let's continue to press on. And it's just this wonderful night of celebration for the church um, where they realize that the spirit is with them and they can continue to move forward with confidence. So I'm going to go ahead and stop there. And I think we have about 10 minutes to unpack this second half of the reading. Yeah. Me? Go ahead, Gail. I'll go after you. Oh, well, I was just, it, it's the, when they said it, his, is his angel. I mean, that's the, first time I can remember a reference to like a guardian angel that we, that we use. And, um, but then in Matthew, I looked that up. Do not let despise the little ones because their angels are, or they're always looking up their angels. So talk about that a little bit, John. I mean, you know, I don't think we say our guardian angels. Um, and I, I have faith in that sometimes, you know, but it was interesting to, it struck me you know, his angel, his own personal guardian of, from Christ or God. Yeah. So thanks for bringing that up. So just if anyone missed what Gail's referencing, uh, Peter is um, at the door knocking and Rhoda comes in and says, Peter's outside. And they say, you're out of your mind. And the reason they say you're out of your mind is because again, he's guarded in the deepest, darkest dungeon by two soldiers, one at each side, and then people guarding outside. Um, so one of two things, uh, they're saying one of two things, either it's Peter's guardian angel. Now the word guardian angel is not in scripture. That's a later addition, but the idea that someone has an angel to protect them. Um, so they either mean that, or they mean that Peter's dead and that it's like his spirit, but they don't use the word spirit. They use the word angel. You know, so 
Uh, and Gail referenced this um, verse from Matthew where Jesus says, do not despise the little ones for truly I tell you they're angels, you know, gaze at my father day after day. And so there seems to be a belief embedded in early Judaism and Christianity that has carried forward in the official teaching of the church, but doesn't really receive much attention, uh, where angels play a significant role. And um, if one reads theology all the way through the Middle Ages, that in the order of creation, it's not just God and humans, but there are angels, and we're named after St. Michael, an archangel. And so I don't really know what to tell you about angels because I don't really have a full doctrine of them developed other than that scripture consistently bears witness to their reality. And the only thing I will say for certain that Christians don't believe is when you die, you don't then turn into an angel. That's not the teaching of the church. So I will say that angels are a creation in their own right. It makes it seem like this an image of, of, of Peter because, but instead of his angel and, and then do not, you know, entertain angels unawares. Yeah. I don't know. It's something to think about again. Yeah. yeah. And I will say, and then we'll go to you, Mary, that, you know, one misconception about angels is that they're like, they're sweet and comforting. And I think that there are moments of that, but anytime an angel appears to someone in scripture, they are terrified. And the, the angel basically has to say, fear not, Mary. You know, I'm, I come with good news. I'm here with a blessing. You know, last week, it was the angel who appeared to Cornelius. He was terrified. Fear not, Cornelius. Your prayers have ascended before God. So, um, you know, if we were to encounter an angel, there's no guarantee uh, that it would be uh, an experience that wasn't terrifying. So, Mary? Um what I was noticing, and even it, I noticed it, but it became more apparent with our discussion of disciples and apostles and who and what, is when it, he says, tell this to James and to the believers. Then he left and went to another place. It's like, well, there's an apostle. I mean, <laughs> or he's Sherry, but it's like he didn't even stay around to find out. I mean, that question that you asked, does he know James is dead? Does he need to know James is dead? Did they not, why did they not? Do they not have time enough to even tell him? It just, that, that, that particular two sentences hit me anyway, but then in light of uh, moving on and other work to do, I thought that's pretty much being an apostle as well. So one note about that, yes, he is an apostle, he leaves. But I think that now that I read this a second time or a third time, he's talking about a different James. It's James, the brother of John, who's killed with the sword. And here, Peter is probably referring to James, the brother of Jesus, who's the first bishop of Jerusalem. Okay. So actually, I that the first time I read it. And All it's right. confusing. Yeah. That makes good sense. Barbara? Yeah. Can you, um, can you talk about why um, the Jews were so threatened by this, you know, initially the way, you know, this, this, offshoot of Judaism and why, um, I mean, because churches, you know, and synagogues, you know, split all the time. I mean, it's just what they do. And, but that they had a murderous rage over it. Um, can you offer some background 
what that, you know, what that was about? I can, yeah. And it's not going to be a complete answer, but there's just two things worth highlighting. One is, remember, um, the Jews did not live in a dominant culture. They lived under Roman oppression, and they had a long history of, like, when the Romans got mad, they um, got violent, right? And so the Jews had been under foreign oppression. It was the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Greeks, the Persians, the Romans. There was this long succession of people who ruled over them, and they always lived as a minority and basically had to balance trying to be faithful with not angering the authorities, the pagan authorities that ruled over them. And so there was probably a subtle fear that these Christians were going to stir up a lot of trouble and that they were going to go down in flames with them. So that's probably one fear. Um, Another thing is that, remember, the things that Jesus routinely did and said were deeply offensive to how they understood the law. And so, you know, Jesus would say, you know, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up again. But he was talking about his body. Or he would go and touch a leper, which made him unclean, and he would do so intentionally. Or he would eat on the Sabbath when he wasn't supposed to, or he'd pick grain on the Sabbath. And so he claimed to be fulfilling the law and the prophets, but his outward behavior so consistently seemed to um, um, denigrate and and (coughs) not honor what they understood the law to be. So it just made them mad. And whenever he claimed to be the son of God, that's blasphemy. I mean, unless the claim is true, which we believe it is, it's blasphemy. And they wanted to kind of, rooted out because one of the the theologies kind of embedded in the old testament is it's almost like whenever there's uncleanliness the whole land is polluted and so think of like the idea of like something being polluted or think of like a a cancer cell in the body that needs to be rooted out that this is almost how they viewed it that um that God's going to judge all of us and let's kind of get rid of this, this bad apple here. So that was probably part of their thinking. And then one final thing uh, is that even though many Jews did believe in resurrection um, with the exception of the Sadducees, the resurrection of the dead was something that they believed would happen to all people at the end of time and not one man in the middle of time. Oh. And so whenever they went around talking about the resurrection of the dead, they were referring to something that had happened in the middle of history, as opposed to something that would happen at the end of history. And they certainly didn't like that as well. So those are just a few of the things I think in the mix. Wow. I mean, they must have been living in absolute terror that the Romans were going to stop on them. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it makes you a little bit more compassionate when you can look at it from that angle. Yeah, it, it, it really helps me. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah, very valuable. Because what we don't want to do is paint, you know, the, the, the reason Jesus often, what we don't want to do is kind of paint the religious authorities in the New Testament as like these evil people, you know? Um, they were just doing the best they could, you know, and doesn't excuse the way that they often missed it, but um, 
but they were doing the best they could given the time frame in which they lived, I think. 